up now who's going to read today's passage for us. Thank you. Today's reading will be from Exodus 3. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and if you have a church Bible, that is on page 59. So that's Exodus 3, starting from verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way, of, the, way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. 
but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards his people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. Thank you so much, Roche. And let's bow our heads in prayer one more time and ask the Lord to speak to us as we approach this holy word. Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We pray that you would enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, if you don't know me, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here. I'll be speaking on that passage And then a bit later, Chris, one of our elders, will be leading us uh, in the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. Uh, We're continuing today our series in the epic story of Exodus, the great saga of slavery and freedom, the founding of the nation, uh, the Israelites, and indeed the place that the New Testament looks to, to understand what Jesus has accomplished. And we're joining Moses in the wilderness, and remember from last week, Moses is really a failed freedom fighter. And here he is many years later. Uh, if you turn back to Exodus chapter 3, we see he's, he's now married. And he's working as a shepherd for his father-in-law, Jethro. And I suppose it might have looked for Moses like his career was over. And that he's just gone, gone into retirement. He's had to put his Che Guevara beret with the red star on the front on the shelf. And it's gathered, gathering dust there out in Midian. But meanwhile, the Israelites are still in Egypt, groaning and crying out in their miserable slavery. And immediately before this chapter, if you look at the end of chapter 2, it describes their condition during that long period. The king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about him. God was not deaf. He wasn't immune to their pain. What's going to happen next? Now the Lord steps in. But he does so in quite a strange way, if you think about it. Why this episode, this very minor thing, apparently, and out in the wilderness, only Moses and God, this bush that burns and won't go out. What is going on here? And the key to this, to understand this, is to know that Moses, before he can go and lead God's people, has to know the Lord. He has to know the God who he is serving. Before he does anything else, it's more important that he is taught and educated by God about who God is. And the Israelites need to know God too to know that this is the God who they will now follow and serve. Because rescue from Egypt means coming under new lordship. It means coming out from the rule of Pharaoh, one king, to the rule of God, 
the true king. Moses needs to know who that is. The Israelites need to know. And so do we if we're going to enjoy freedom. Because this is how it connects to our lives. Like the Israelites, we too are enslaved by far more things than we realize. Anything in your experience that works you to the bone, anything in your life that makes your life bitter, that works you ruthlessly, is a form of slavery. We just don't realize it. A lot more people are enslaved than they think because slavery is usually slavery of the mind, slavery of the spirit. We're slaves to our own sense of significance. We're slaves to other people's approval. We're slaves to our habits, addictions, our security. When I first preached on Exodus nearly 10 years ago, somebody said to me, I realized for the first time that I'm a slave to my life. Does that ring any bells? Now, this is not, by the way, to belittle the reality of physical slavery that we know of from history and even, tragically, modern slavery that exists today, even in this great city of London. But it is to recognize that the Bible uses slavery as a category to talk about life apart from God's rule and blessing. So life apart from living under God's rule and blessing is slavery in Bible terms. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Jesus promised, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, by our nature and by our constant habits, we are enslaved to this thing called sin, living life for our own glory, not God's glory, and reaping the result. So according to the Bible, we're all slaves. We all need a new king. And the story of Exodus is a change of kingship, a change of who you serve. They go from being slaves of Pharaoh to slaves of the Lord. Set free to serve a new king. That's what we need. To go from our slavery to sin, our slavery to ourselves, our slavery to anxiety, and be turned to the service of the one whom to serve is perfect freedom. That's setting the scene here. Now, how can we get to live in such a way that we are no longer enslaved? Some people answer that question by saying, you know, you need a new vision of you. You need a new vision of you. You need to realize that you are actually a really great person. You've got loads of potential. You are loved. We love you. You're loved by a lot of people. But that is not the answer that the Bible gives not saying that not a lot of people love you, but growing in self-esteem actually could be superficial. It could even be toxic to you. It won't do the job of setting you free. Notice what happens when Moses asks a key question in verse 11 there on page 60. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God responds, Don't worry, Moses. You're great. We all think you can do it. You had a brilliant experience of the inner workings of Pharaoh's palace. You looked the part. You even walked like an Egyptian. You had the best education that Egypt could offer. Acts 7 says he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And don't worry about the speech impediment. We can work with that. Okay, you're getting on in years, but 40 years in the wilderness herding sheep has given you a certain gravitas. 
No, that is not how God responds. It is not about Moses and what he's got in himself and his own hidden, unrecognized potential. Who am I? Do you know what God's answer is? Who I am. We ask, who am I? And God doesn't tell you who you are. He tells you who he is. That's what you need to know. Who I am. And that's what this chapter is all about. Who is this God? We don't need a bigger version of me, a bigger vision of me. We need a bigger vision of God himself that will carry us through life. It's the only thing that will. If you can grasp a true vision of God from the Bible, it will carry you through all the changing scenes of life. It will hold you by the hand in times of doubt and darkness. It will give you grit and endurance in times of struggle. If you fall into sin, this vision of God will bring you to your senses and make you stand up and turn around and repent. We need a vision that sets us free to walk in the light. And we need a bigger vision of God. A friend of ours called Ali, whose mother died quite young, wrote these words. It's been a tough few years. My mum was diagnosed in cancer, and after battling it for two years, she died last summer. Every day of those two years, I would tell myself many times, remember what you know is true. God is loving. He knows what he's doing. He's not deserted us. Mum is safe in his hands. But if I'm honest, it didn't always feel that way. At times it felt more like torture than love. I didn't understand what God was doing and I felt sometimes that he wasn't there at all. I felt that one more thing would break me. But she continued, a year on, I still can't say I have all the answers, but I can say this, I have never been more sure that God is loving, that he is good and faithful to his promises. God carried me through each day, and I'm convinced he always will. When I was angry with him and doubted, he never turned his back on me. I'm more aware than ever that the world and my heart is broken, but Jesus Christ has completely and perfectly dealt with my brokenness and promised the most amazing future with him, which is the most precious thing ever. Now, those are her words. She wrote that when she got baptized. Do you see what, she's, what happened? She grasped a vision of God. Didn't happen like that. Two years of suffering. Mum died. A year later, she realized over the time, this vision of God had shaped her reality and set her free. That's what we need. And in this chapter, I want to just draw attention. I really feel like there was so much here we could have talked about. We could have done this for weeks, but we only had one week. So I think it's coming up there. Two headings today. God, two big concepts. If you can get these, you've got the sermon. God is both totally transcendent and intimately imminent. If only I knew Makaton, I'd be able to know what that was. Totally transcendent. And what's transcendent? Don't know. We'll find out for next week. Totally transcendent and intimately imminent. Great, good job, guys. You spelt imminent correctly. Now, each of these two headings has got three subpoints, just in case you thought you were getting off lightly. It's really a six-point sermon, but it's going to be quick. 
totally transcendent. In the book, Peace Child, a missionary called Don Richardson told a story of how he and his wife, Carol, went to Papua New Guinea to work with a, a tribal group called the Sawi people. And Don and Carol learned a complex language, and they lived with the people, and they studied the culture, and they did all of this so that they could communicate the scriptures and the love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus. But one day, Don encountered part of the Sawi culture that was deeply disturbing. He was telling the story in their own language of Jesus, and Jesus coming near to the cross, and how Judas Iscariot went out and sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, and Judas Iscariot betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that moment, the group who were listening laughed and broke into applause because in their culture, Judas did something really heroic. And the missionary was completely shot. Imagine sharing the gospel with the tribe, a cannibal tribe, who admired Judas' betrayal more than Jesus' sacrifice. Not only murder, but treacherous murder had been the ideal of that people for generations when those missionaries risked their lives to live among them. Here's the thing. Every culture finds some aspects of the truth about God hard to embrace. And every culture finds other things easy to embrace. The Bible will challenge every culture at some point, including ours, and it will also affirm every culture at some point. And we need to hold both those things in uh, as we look at our culture and other cultures. So the first point, God is totally transcendent, I think is a bit harder for us to grasp as modern Western people. God is transcendent. He's beyond us. He's not your buddy. He's not your mate. He is utterly, awesomely other from us. He's far above us, beyond our understanding. God gave us every good thing that we've ever enjoyed. God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe you an explanation. We need to get this transcendence in our vision of God. Now, three aspects of his transcendence jump out, scream out in this passage. His majesty... His holiness, his name. Just to give us a sense of how transcendent God is. To give us an, uh, this concept, God is totally transcendent. Now, first of all, notice back in uh, Exodus chapter 3, when God appears to him in flames of fire from within a bush, Moses sees that the bush is on fire, it didn't burn up. Moses thinks at first, well, what's that? You know, he doesn't realize what's going on. I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. And God speaks to him. And then God says, verse 5, Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals. God's majesty. Now, when I last preached on this, I got everyone to take their shoes off. I'm not going to do that today. I don't know if it could be distracting. But imagine that before you could approach someone, you had to take your shoes off. There's something about this person. You don't approach them in the normal way. You approach carefully. You don't bring whatever's on your shoes, mud and dust and whatever. You don't bring that into their presence. You come in submitting to their greatness. This implies absolute respect to someone superior. 
Take off your shoes. God is majestic. Now, human beings don't just stroll into his presence when they feel like it. And wow, this is a concept that is hard for us to grasp in our culture, isn't it? Majesty. We still had some sense of the concept with the queen. There was still some sense of distance. You don't go into the queen and then turn your back and walk away from her. Remember that? You have to go out backwards, probably fall over. There was still some sense of the old magic, the distance, the mystery with the queen. But now, I mean, let's not get started on the royal family, eh? The sense of majesty is diminishing quick. I used to share an office with a, a, a lovely British Indian woman, Indian background, brought up in, in London. And uh, she, uh, we shared an office for about three or four years when I was a headhunter. And one day, it was only the two of us in the office, me and Jyoti, and if my phone rang and I picked it up and I said cheerily, hello, mate, and started talking to this individual, this man on the end of the phone, and put the phone down. And at the end of it, Jyoti turned to me, and in a really slightly surprised fashion, she said, who were you just speaking to? And I said, it was my father-in-law. And she said, you would call your father-in-law mate? Because in her culture, which is a respect culture to older people, you would never call your father or your father-in-law mate. You'd show him respect. And she told me that in her culture, it would not be uh, inappropriate to greet her father-in-law by getting on the ground and touching his feet with her head to show respect. See how far from us this is? We have to recapture some of this. God's majesty is the king. And the essence of who God is is summed up in a characteristic called holiness. Secondly, holiness. There again in verse 5. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, it's important for us to realize here, this is not because of that particular patch of soil somewhere in the wilderness in the ancient Near East. This is not because that had, there's just this bit that's holy and this bit isn't. It's not because of the soil there. It's because of the presence of God. God's very presence makes the ground holy because he is so holy. Now, the text says that God has appeared to Moses in the form of an angel or messenger. Have a look at verse 2. There, notice in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Now this phrase, angel of the Lord, you may remember if you were here for our Abraham series, this, we've seen this angel of the Lord before. The angel of the Lord appears, and then pretty soon afterwards, the Lord is speaking. So we get in this sense, hang on a minute, who's the angel of the Lord if when he speaks, God speaks? The scholars tell us that you could easily translate this, the angel who is the Lord. The angel of the Lord isn't just any old angel. He's the angel who is the Lord. In other words, God is manifesting himself. God who fills all the cosmos is manifesting himself in one spot in human history, one place in the form of an angel. Later on, uh, God in Exodus is going to manifest appear, reveal himself in the form of a pillar of fire. 
It's a way of God accommodating his vastness and greatness to our smallness and limitation and our finiteness. The infinite is going to come down to us, stooping low and appearing to be with us to come near us. And here, it's the angel of the Lord, a form that is, is able to be seen, and Moses is actually afraid to look at him. Look at verse 6. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The presence of God makes the ground holy because God himself is supremely holy. And this idea of holiness is the central characteristic of the God of the Bible. Holy means two things. Firstly, it means pure. God is absolutely morally perfect. We don't judge God by our moral standards. Everything else is judged by the character of God himself. He's pure. He's moral perfection. But it also means something else. It means that he's separate. The word, the original word comes from a Hebrew word that means cut, like to cut apart, to be separate. And we might say God is a cut above the rest of creation. He is other. He's holy, holy, holy. And God's moral purity is such that he can't even bring himself to be near sin. Therefore, some distance is required for Moses' safety, so as not to intrude on the holiness of God. Be careful. Stand back. Don't play with fire. Proximity to God carries a danger to the person who is not properly prepared because God is so burningly holy and other. That's why God often manifests himself in fire in the Bible to teach us something about what he is like. To Abraham, God appeared as a blazing pot in the covenant ceremony. To Israel, as a pillar of fire in the wilderness. And here, a burning shrub, a bush in a dry desert that burns but is not consumed. This bush, the word for this, for this bush is seneh, which sounds like the word Sinai. Because this is a little foretaste of what is going to come later. Because this mountain, which is called Horeb in verse 1, it says is the mountain of God, and it's the same mountain as Mount Sinai later on. Two different names for the same place. God is going to bring them back here and manifest himself again in fire. Hebrews sums all of this up with the words, Our God is a consuming fire. Fire communicates something about the nature of God. His intense, burning holiness. Just as fire will refine metal and burn away all the dross and make it pure and shining and gold, burning away all impurities, God too is holy. And this majestic, holy God speaks. He's there and he is not silent. And he comes to tell Moses his name. Notice the interaction in chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Oh, actually, we'll start at verse 11. Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses is still not 
confident, and he says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, then what shall I tell them? And God reveals his name. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now this name here, I am, this word in the Hebrew language is the word ehye, and it means I am, or I will be who I will be. And then in verse 15, God says, this is how you to refer to me, and in verse 15 we see it is spelled in small capital letters, the Lord. If you have a look at your Bible, verse 15. Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers has sent me. I am Lord Yahweh. Now this is a very odd name. It goes right to the heart of things though. Because Moses is going to go into Egypt, quaking in his boots. And Egypt is full of many, many gods. In the ancient world, people divinize the forces of nature. They turn things in nature into gods. The gods then have names to do with what they are. So they worship the sun. And the sun god was called Shemesh, word for sun, or in Egypt, Ra. You've probably heard of that one. They worshipped the river. So in Egypt, the Nile is a god called Happy. They worship a frog god. So there's a god called Frog, Hecate. And what we're going to see in Exodus is that the true God is going to humiliate all the false pretenders and all the mascots are going to become plagues. Yahweh is going to humiliate Egypt's gods. And his name is the start of it because it is the most powerful assertion possible. Just to stay with me on this. When God comes to judge the false pretenders to his throne, he says simply, I am. You can't call me sun or river or stone or frog or bull or any of the other types of things in creation. There is nothing in creation that can compare to him. He simply is, I am. I will be who I will be. I am who I am. You can't connect him with something else in his creation to define him because he is the essence of what it is to be. Now in our Bibles... It is printed in small capital letters, and it's printed as Lord, and you probably noticed that and thought, what, what is that? And from medieval times, uh, the word behind this word Lord in capitals was thought to be pronounced something like Jehovah. So we have old hymns that talk about Jehovah, and also there's a, a sect called the Jehovah's Witnesses. But that was um, now re realized to be a mistake. And more likely, this name would have been pronounced something like Yahweh. Yahweh. But it was a name that was treated with such reverence that by the end of the Old Testament times, it was never pronounced except by the high priest in the temple. So the name, the actual pronunciation of God's name fell into disuse, and we don't know exactly how it sounded. But we know what it means. Yahweh means he is. And if he's the one who says, I am, what does that mean about all the others? They are not. If his name is he is, then the others are they isn't. They are not. British scientist and uh, famous commentator Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion. 
And you know, he was almost right. Most gods are delusions, fantasies, dreams and projections, but not Yahweh. He is the one who is. Everything else relies on him. God is saying, I am he and there is no other. And that's why you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear Pharaoh or any of the other gods. Yahweh is the one and only, the incomparable God. And this is why, friends here, Christians, and those who are not Christians yet but are looking into the faith, this is why when the real God comes down into your life, everything else makes way for him. When God comes into your life, he will turn all the furniture upside down. And he has every right to do so. We are not dealing with a tame lion. God doesn't owe us a trouble-free life. He will not give us everything that we want or ask for. He wants to do much more than that. He wants to give you himself. His majestic, holy, awesome, transcendent self. And he wants to tell you his name. He wants to tell you his name. Now, names are interesting, aren't they? Let me find someone here who I don't know. Hi, my name's Mike. What's your name? Hi, Kimberly. What have I just done? I've just met Kimberly and shared my name. And because we now have shared names, we can start to relate to one another. See, God sharing his name is a stunning move because you know what names do. They advance relationship. Once you know my name and I know yours, we can become closer. And that leads us from totally transcendent to the second point, which is intimately imminent. Intimately imminent. The second big concept. Notice the spelling of the word imminent. This is not imminent with an I, which means something that's about to happen. The Lord's Supper is imminent. This is immanent, which means pervading and always present. God is pervasive. He's always present. He is near and he is here. That is God's imminence. So it's the balancing thing to transcendent, imminent. God is here and he is near. And I want to quickly highlight three aspects of this imminence to draw us into this text. God's concern, his closeness, and his love. First of all, God is concerned. Look at what he says in verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down. This God listens. He looks. He remembers. He's attentive. And he lets their suffering in to his great heart. Like a parent with a suffering or sorrowing child. Now, there are millions of children in this world, And there are millions of suffering children in this world. And to be honest with you, I care about them in a sympathetic kind of way, but it's all a bit arm's length. But when one of our own children is really suffering, then it gets right in here. I remember, uh, gosh, 16, 17 years ago, my daughter had a fit, turned blue, lay on the ground, had a really high temperature. She was about, I don't know, 18 months, two years old, and... I was at work in central London. My wife panicked, phoned my dad. My dad got the ambulance. 
They rushed her, blue-lighted her to the Kingston Hospital. My dad went in the ambulance. Melissa was driving behind. And when we got there, I, I, I went down, and, and, and they said she's had febrile convulsions, but we're going to check for meningitis because it looks very similar. So there she was, this little scrap of humanity, little ball, little girl. And I remember going down to the ward and seeing, seeing her in this room, and they said, parents should go out now. And we went out, and I looked back, and I just saw this little girl looking up to us like this with these scared eyes as these doctors were gathered around because they had to put a, a needle in her back to get some fluid out. And then they pulled the curtain across. Oh, my days. <laughs> the feeling of that moment, I'll never forget it. Because she's our daughter. And her pain gets right in here. And now here, in an amazing moment, God shares that he has let the suffering of the Israelites in here. In chapter 4, he says, Israel is my son. This is how Yahweh views his people. That's how much he loves you, Christian friend. You're his daughter. You're his son. That's how he feels about his children, about you. And I want to ask, do you know this? Not in some intellectual way because you've learned it, but do you really feel it that God views you in that way? He's really concerned for you. Have you tasted this reality? If not, ask him to show you today. He's concerned and therefore he is close. Verse 8, so I have come down. Because he's concerned, he comes near, not in some kind of primitive conception of the world, but an appropriate way about talking about the great one, the transcendent one, coming down, modifying himself, consent, condescending to draw near to us. Moses, in his case, it was a form that he could see. He was afraid to look at first, but it was a personal encounter. God makes all the moves. He comes down. All the initiative is on God's side. Moses didn't seek it out. He's just minding his own business, tending the sheep. And then God steps in, breaks into time and space. God gets his sleeves rolled up. He gets his hands dirty. He gets involved. Not as a tyrant. He's come down to be in relationship. Moses tries to wriggle out of it. What if they don't listen to me? What about me? Oh, I don't know. I can't do it. Please ask somebody else. And God responds to him. And talks to him back and forth. It's a real relationship. And the essence of this and where I want to conclude here is that God is not only concerned and close, but he's, he is that because he is love. God is love. God speaks to Moses from within a burning bush and calls out his name twice. Moses. Moses. And the scholars call that the repetition of endearment. It's an affectionate way to speak to someone. King David, many years later, would cry out to his beloved son, Absalom, Absalom, as his heart broke. It shows affection and love. The mighty God, the one who is, speaks to Moses and gets his attention and calls him to a task. And it is a task that God has been preparing him for throughout his entire life, only he didn't know it. Moses has been uniquely prepared for this moment because although he feels daunted, he is ready. God has been working to prepare him. He's a person of dual heritage. He's a Hebrew who's been brought up in the Egyptian culture. He knows two, two heritage. 
heritages. He's been educated in all the wisdom and the language and literature of the Egyptians. The highest education was given to him. And even his long years leading sheep around in the wilderness are prepared because guess what? He's going to lead God's people through that same wilderness to this mountain. How great is the love of God working in our lives in unseen ways to prepare us for what he wants us to do. How wonderful is his character? Such a very beautiful combination of majesty and grace. Moses asked, who am I? God says, who I am. I will be with you. Now, what about you, dear friends? Where, where are you at in your life now? Where are you struggling? Where have you almost given up? Where might you be compromising with this world? Where are you sinning? Where do you doubt and feel that God is totally absent? Do you think that he has forgotten you? Do you feel that you're in the wilderness? Have you almost forgotten him? If your life was a house, is there a room that God is not allowed into? It's a dark place. The living room looks nice, but you wouldn't want anyone to see the basement. You need a bigger vision of God to be free. You need to grasp both concepts. He is totally transcendent and intimately imminent. His awesomeness, his holiness, and equally strongly you need to grasp his incredible intimate closeness. He is right here now by his spirit. He is beside you. He wants to be near you. He wants to know you. He wants to be in relationship. But you know, these two concepts, if you think about it, it creates a tension, doesn't it? How can these two concepts coexist? How can the holy God live near to flammable people? Because we are flammable. There's plenty in us that needs to be burned up. This chapter raises the, vi- the question in a very visual form. How can a bush, dry bush in a dry desert, burn and not be consumed? How can the bush be burning, we've got inside it, and yet it's not destroyed? How does this happen? Many years later, Moses will come, some years later, Moses will come back to the same spot with the people to Mount Horeb, and God will appear again. And Moses doesn't know how this works, but you do, Christian friend. And today we remember it at this table, because the answer to how God, the totally transcendent, can live with us in intimacy is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Because this isn't the last time that a baby was saved from a genocidal, paranoid king. And it isn't the last time that an unlikely saviour comes out of Egypt, as Joseph and Mary would find out. Because in Jesus Christ, we finally get the answer to how God can live with flammable people. And it is because of the cross. At the cross, Jesus took all the fiery wrath of a holy God on himself so that his people could be forgiven and cleansed and made pure. At the cross, an exchange happened that literally rocked the world. As Jesus died, finished his work of dying on the cross, a most extraordinary thing happened in the city of Jerusalem. In the temple, a huge curtain, a massive thick protecting barrier was torn in two from the top down to the bottom, signaling that it was not torn by a human hand, because no one would have been able to reach up there. But God himself had torn it apart and open the way. And we tend to think of it as now it's free for us to go in. But actually, another way of looking at it in light of this burning bush is that now it's safe for God to come out 
because Jesus has paid our price and brought us into his presence. And now the Spirit of God lives in you and the Holy Spirit is present with us right now today if you are born again. So we're going to come to the table and remember and celebrate and thank and adore this totally transcendent and intimately intimate God again. Amen.